Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Hello, I'm Alison Larkin, writer, comedian, narrator, and host of The Jane Austen Podcast. Join me as we embark on a journey through Austen's timeless stories, starting with Pride and Prejudice. The Jane Austen Podcast with Alison Larkin is available wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is for mature audiences. It contains graphic violence and adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. Realm Presents Blood and Gold Starring Richard Cabral Episode 16 1853 Gabilan Mountains, California The United States is far from the only place on Earth where all are not equal under the law. While France expands its colonial empire with the annexation of New Caledonia in the South Pacific, in Europe, a new Austrian law strips Jews of the right to own land. I had wanted to leave Arroyo de Cantua at first light, but the night before, after my speech, many of the men had gotten drunk, and in the morning, people wanted to speak to me, to touch me, to thank me for all I had done for them. I tried to press coins into the palms of the poorest ones, knowing they might have left their farms or their jobs to come out when I'd called. Some refused it, others accepted with even more profuse thanks. All in all, getting out of there took hours. I rode with seven of my most trusted friends, Tres Dedos, of course, and Joaquin Valenzuela, Luis Volvilla, and Antonio Valencia, who'd been with Tres Dedos since before I even knew them. Antonio Severino, Gregorio Lopez, and Gustavo Zaragoza rounded out the group. Severino had a cousin in Monterrey that he wanted to see, so we headed there first to drop him off. From there, we would travel south. Valencia and Zaragoza wanted to stop in Los Angeles. The rest were bound for the border and Mexico. Tres Dedos refused to go back to Trincheras alone. He was determined to stay with me until Harry Love was dead. We started out too late to make it in a day, so stopped for the night in the Gabaline Mountains, where Lopez was able to shoot a white-tailed deer for dinner. We cleaned it where it died and left the remains, carrying the meat a fair distance away so as not to attract the predators and scavengers after the offal. We made camp in a clearing with fresh water nearby. After we cooked and ate as much as we wanted, we sat around the fire sharing a bottle of mezcal. 
Zaragoza was regaling us with his plans to reunite with the woman he was in love with. I know a pretty French girl who deals cards in Los Angeles. I want to see if she'll make an honest man of me. What do you think of that, Manuel? <laughs> a French card dealer. Not likely. <laughs> but you'll enjoy her corrupting influence just the same. <laughs> if she throws you out, Gustavo, you can always come back and work at my uncle's ranch. The pay isn't much, but it's every month. And the only one trying to kill you are the cows. <laughs> I think I'd rather take my chances with people. At least I know what they're up to. I think cows are probably sneakier than anybody knows. <laughs> we all laughed at that, and Tres Dedos passed around the flask. Conversation continued, but I was thinking about Harry Love. Moving alone, or just with Tres Dedos, I should be able to get close enough for a clean shot. Perhaps even near enough to use a knife, so Love would know in the end who had killed him and why. Another hour or two passed, and we started getting sleepy. The talk dwindled and the laughter died out. Zaragoza was the first to curl up on the ground. With a blanket under him and some of it wrapped around on top, his head on his saddle. Bulvia volunteered to take the first watch, so I settled in and tried to quiet my mind. It wasn't easy, but I finally drifted off, surrounded by the rustling, throat clearing, and gentle snores of my closest friends. I wasn't sure what awakened me, but I glanced over and in the light from the dying fire, saw Bulvia sitting up with his chin on his chest, sound asleep. Then I heard it again, a loud snort and a quieter kind of gulping sound. Both came from where the horses were picketed nearby. I recognized the sounds that the horses make when they're anxious or scared. I rose quietly, lifting the gum belt at my side. The smell of the excess deer meat might have drawn any number of predators despite us leaving the bulk of the animal where it found. A big cat, a wolf pack, or bears could injure or kill the horses. Maybe even my men if they got that far. I buckled the belt around my waist and grabbed the rifle too. Out of habit, I donned my hat, pulling it low over my brow. ¿Qué pasa, Joaquín? That was Tres Dedos sitting up. He always seemed aware of my slightest movement. Something spooked the horses. I'll go look. I'll be here. Tres Dedos shook Bulvia. You're supposed to be watching. Perdón. I better make some coffee. Haz eso. Tres Dedos struck a match and lit a fresh cigar. With he and Bulvia awake, I stepped into the trees listening for any unexpected rustling in the brush. I heard another snort before I reached the horses. They were definitely aroused. One standing stock still, staring at something off in the darkness. 
another scraping at the ground over and over with the same hoof. At the sight of me, who they knew well, a few of them relaxed. Tranquilos todos. I'll see what's out there. I was still walking away from the camp when I heard muffled voices. Then the shooting began. I spun around and ran headlong toward the camp. In the shadows of the tree canopy, I ran smack into a tree. It was a pine, not a hardwood trunk, but I took a needle in the eye or sap. The pain was ferocious. Half blinded, I pushed off and continued. Guns were still going off. Far too many shots fired to just be my men, shooting at wolves or bears. No, this was an exchange of fire between people. When I was close enough to the camp, I saw more than a dozen men in a U formation, surrounding most of my friends. There was blood everywhere. Tres Dedos was face down beside the fire. Vurvia on his back, one arm smoldering in the coals with his beloved coffee pot tipped over beside him. Lopez sprawled out with a gun near each hand. He'd gone out shooting. Zaragoza, Valencia, and Severino taking in their sleep. If any yet lived, I couldn't tell. Almost directly across from me stood Harry Love. Harry and his California Rangers had caught up with us at last. They must have returned to the canyon right after we departed and picked up our trail from there. I pressed the rifle to my shoulder and aimed, pulled the trigger, but the man was in motion and my round only nipped his sleeve. I threw down the rifle and yanked the Colt, firing at closer targets. Two of the rangers went down, even as love opened fire at me. A round crashed into my left shoulder, staggering me. White heat followed, and I knew that was going to hurt. I let my left arm hang and fired at men I knew I could hit. Headshots. With each one, another attacker went down. At the same chaotic instant, Tres Dedos, who had obviously already taken two or three bullets, lurched to his feet and lunged toward the rangers, a bowie knife in one hand and a pistol in the other. I staggered back into the pines, watching from the shadows as my wounded cousin fired his gun into rangers' skulls. At close range, spraying pink mist out the other side, love shot tres dedos again. His bullet powering through Manuel's left arm and into his ribs. Even so, Tres Dedos drove the big knife deep into another ranger's chest. Love fired twice more, hitting Tres Dedos both times. And finally, my cousin went down. I fired from the pines, and with each crack of my gun, another ranger was hit. Then I tried for another shot at Love. Before I could pull the trigger, another bullet or ball hit me in the right hip spinning me around so that I almost lost my balance. The pain was instantaneous. I made for the relative safety of the trees as best as I could, limping, hoping that my black clothing would let me mount into the shadows. The gunfire stopped. Were all my men dead then? A profound sorrow came over me. 
but I pushed it away and let fury take its place. The men who did this had to obey, especially Harry Love. I leaned against the tree and reloaded the colt. Barely able to walk, I tried for a new angle on the men, now advancing into my camp. I only made it a few steps before several of them got a beat on me and fired. One round knocked off my hat, raising my scalp. I wasn't even sure how many times I'd been hit. I felt them all at once, as if a stampeding bull had charged into me. Half blind, blood in my eyes, off balance, my hip screaming, I tried to hurtle toward cover. Then the ravine yawned in front of me. Unable to halt my forward motion, I went over the edge, tumbled and rolled, and finally came to a stop at the bottom, lying on my back, with my right side half submerged in the cool water of the stream. I tried to rise, but couldn't. I sank back down. Pain defined my entire world. A rustle of brush from the top of the ravine caught my attention. I blinked away blood, tried to see. Pale moonlight showed a figure standing there. A blur in the night. A big man, one arm raised, something in his hand. This was it then. The kill shot. I almost appreciated the coup de grace that would end my pain, vanquish my sorrow. But instead of shooting from his elevated perch, the man started down the slope, clutching a brush for balance. My vision blurred, then sharpened. At last, I recognized the man. Harry, love. I pawed at my hip, but the coat was gone, somewhere up above or lost in the fall. As love reached level ground, I tried to rise, intending to rush the man and choke the life from him. I couldn't. My arms gave away beneath me. I had no strength in my legs, could barely scrape my heels back and forth in the dirt. Looking up at love, blackness closed in until all I could see was the big man's face. And then not even that. Joaquin. At the sound of his voice, my vision cleared again. I lifted my head an inch or two off the ground. It took every bit of strength I possessed. Harry. I had to walk in. You understand that, don't you? Can't have you stirring up the other greasers like some kind of outlaw hero. Makes it harder to keep them in their place. It's a shame you, you have to be put down so decent white folks can sleep easy at night. We were, we were friends once. Harry might have been smiling, but I couldn't be sure. We were. I always liked you. I felt empty, cold, 
For a few moments, I forgot where I was. Forgot that Harry Love stood before me with a pistol in his hand. Then I became aware again. The ground was damp. The air, still. Love wavered, as if I was looking at my reflection in a pond into which someone had thrown a stone. I'm... I'm finished, Harry. I'm done. Dying. I can see that, Joaquin. Can you do one thing for me? What's that? I was shivering now. The cold causing me to stammer. In my pocket. A scarf. I, ca I can't. Can't reach it. What about it? I. I want to hold it. Hang on then. I'll get it for you. Love hosted the revolver. He approached me slowly as anticipating a trap. But he seemed to understand that I had no strength left. Couldn't have attacked him. Still, he kept the hip with the gun on it, turned away from me as he fished in my pocket. This old scrap. It was true. There wasn't much left of the thing. I had worried it almost to nothingness. But it was enough. Yes, yes, that. Put, put it in my hand. Please. Love leaned in. Near enough that I could smell the rank breath of a man who'd been riding and fighting with little water and no rest. He pressed a bit of silk into my hand and I closed my fist around it. There you go, Joaquin. Th Thank you. Harry. I'll let you be now. Let you die in peace. Harry turned away, took a couple of steps, then stopped. He faced me again, looking down at me. See, I can't tell if I'm sorry it turned out this way. Or glad. I mean, I knew I'd have to kill you. But I figured, I don't know, I, it'd be easier. Yes. I couldn't answer. I felt the bit of silk in my hand and the cold and the darkness swallowing me. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. When I open my eyes again, the sun blazed down. I closed them again. Too bright. Am I alive? I asked of no one in particular. The sound of my own voice startled me. It didn't sound right somehow. It took me a few moments to realize that my right ear was clogged with something. I gingerly raised my right hand to it and poked around. Mud. I remembered Harry coming down to me. We'd spoken briefly. I opened my left fist and saw the scrap of my scarf Harry had fetched for me. Then I remembered Tres Dedos and the others back in the camp. That memory spurred me to my knees. The motion made me throw up again and again until there was nothing left in me but clear, viscous fluid. The violent vomiting made every part of my body burn with pain, especially the wounds on my shoulder, my hip, and scalp. And all of it brought back the first great loss in my life. My Rosita, my friends, my band, even Antonia for a while, had filled some of the emptiness inside me. But nobody could feel all of it. She had left behind a hole that was walled off against everything but hurt. I slumped back onto the mud and gravel of the streamside. Why had I lived, I wondered, when everyone else in my world had died? What had I done wrong? Had I so angered God that even the peace of death was denied me? If I had a gun at that moment, I'd have held it to my forehead and pulled the trigger, but I didn't. I remembered that I'd been carrying my coat when I fell, and the empty holster was still buckled around my middle. The gun might have gone into the stream or almost anywhere when I went over the side, arms flailing. There were guns aplenty back at the camp though. That thought, more than any other, forced me to my feet. The wall of the ravine looked like the tallest of mountains. Could I possibly climb it? You are Joaquin. There's nothing you can't do. Even as I spoke the words, I knew them for a lie. Not only that, but my wounds were relatively superficial. The worst I thought was the left shoulder, but the round seemed to have hit only muscle and passed through. The head wound, a graze, had bled a lot. The right hip was also a graze, tearing my pants and flesh. All of it hurt, 
and the fall had compounded the pain, leaving me cut and bruised all over. But I didn't think any permanent damage had been done to my body. But my heart, my soul, another story altogether. The thought of the guns up there lent me strength. I climbed the slope, grabbing onto bushes with my right hand, pulling myself up little at a time. Twice, I thought about giving up, just letting go when dropping back down where I'd been, but lying there until I died, or worse, recovered, seemed like too much trouble. I pressed on. Finally, I reached the top and scrambled over. Not far now to the camp, through the trees, I was able to walk almost upright, limping but in a more or less straight line. Then I smelled it. The closer I got, the worse it became. Charred flesh, spilled blood, all the other smells that went along with men dying. Closer still, I saw that animals had been there. Ragged bits of flesh were scattered here and there. Somebody's bare foot under the lowest boughs of a pine with no leg attached. Bloody tracks on the earth. Then the camp itself came into view through the branches. The vibrant colors of blankets and serapes and blood painfully bright in the sunshine. I stopped, closed my eyes. Why was I doing this? Why torture myself? The question answered itself. Because I deserved it. No, because they deserved it. My friends. I pushed on, limping, hurting into the midst of it. Zaragoza still in his blankets, a headless body near the fire. Blood turning the dirt brown and black in white circles. From the clothes, I knew it was Gregorio Lopez. But why take his head? And tres dedos, still where he'd been, face down. But his three-fingered hand was gone. And a smaller stain marked the ground near his wrist. Then I knew, for identification, three-fingered Jack's hand. The head of a man who somewhat resembled me, which love must have taken in place of my own. The reward promised the California Rangers if they captured or killed the bandit Joaquin. You know, I fell to my knees beside Tres Dedos, laid my head on the man's broad, still back, weeping. I was never as good of a friend to you as you were to me, Manuel. Perdóname. Do you forgive me? Can you? No answer. I sat back on my haunches and I howled at the sky. Soon, my throat ragged and aching, I prayed. For the first time, it would seem like forever, years anyway, 
I prayed for the souls of my friends, of these men who died because they've been close to me. I prayed for doom to befall those who mutilated their corpses. I prayed to die here with the only people I still loved. That prayer at least was not granted. Exhaustion overcame me and I fell asleep for a while, my head on my beloved cousin's back. When I woke again, still alive, the sun had moved in the sky, and now we're gone, maybe two. I remembered the guns, but those were gone. The rangers had carried away the bodies of their own dead, and from my men had taken guns, ammunition, knives, even boots. The horses were gone, along with whatever gold we had packed into our saddlebags. Thieves then, as well as murderers. All of it under the color of the state. All of it not only legal, but sanctioned by the government. The American government. An earlier Joaquin, younger by a few hours, would have sworn revenge. I looked for that Joaquin, but couldn't find him. He was gone, dead. The Joaquin who lived now was weary to the bone. Vengeance was for younger men. I made another quick pass through the camp and on impulse turned over Tres Dedos' body. My friend's face was almost peaceful. There was maybe even a slight smile on his lips since he'd killed some gringo bastards right before he died. I laughed. Tres Dedos could always make me laugh, even in death. I pulled back his sleeve and found the sharp dagger Tres Dedos always kept strapped to his forearm. The rangers probably figured they found all of his knives when they took the first four or five. Not even close. I knew there was another one, shorter bladed, down his pants, but I decided to leave that one. Manuel might want it in his afterlife. I removed the straps from Tres Dedos' arms and unsheathed the knife. As always, Tres Dedos had kept it razor sharp. I briefly considered plunging into my own heart, but that moment had passed. Instead, I slid it back into its leather sheath and put it on my belt, across from the empty holster. I had lost everyone that mattered to me in this country. But that didn't mean I didn't have people elsewhere. Lopez and Tres Dedos had left me the greatest gift they could offer. Freedom. For once, no one was chasing after me. The authorities thought they had killed the bandit, Joaquin. Joaquin Murrieta is dead. I said aloud, my voice sounded better now, so I tried it again, shouting it to the skies. Joaquin Murrieta ha muerto. Que viva Joaquin. Beyond what I could see from here lay other landscapes, part of California's seemingly infinite variety. Coastlines hemmed in by sheer cliffs 
and others with wide, sandy beaches. Towering mountains eternally cloaked in snow. Vast, sun-baked deserts that seemed empty until one stood inside them and saw the resilience of life. Meadows lush with tall grasses, hills that turned golden in the autumn, rivers that brought gold to those who worked for it. Once, I had thought it all belonged to me. Now I knew better. I could never be more than a visitor here. This wasn't my place after all. I had no horse, no money, no weapons but a knife. But I knew places where I buried gold for just such an occasion. And I had friends out there, people who would help me if I knocked on their doors. Limping, aching, one step at a time, I headed south. South toward Mexico. South toward home. December 1853, San Francisco. Months after the slaughter at the campsite. Despite the chill, Sansom Street was busy. People moved in and out of shops, some laden with packages. Christmas was coming after all. I weaved unnoticed through the bustling crowds. Flower streaked my long hair with gray. Likewise, my thin mustache and bristling beard, lines drawn on my face added years to my appearance. My clothes were black, even the gray coat I wove over my suit. A slight limp marred my gait as I made my way to my destination. Ahead, at the corner of Sansom and Halleck, a long line of people snaked out of an open doorway. I knew the place, King's the saloon owned by John King. A banner hung above the door. Today only see the head of the bandit Joaquin and the smaller type below that and the hand of three-fingered Jack. Inside, the smells of sweaty bodies crowded together wrestled with the aroma of liquor, making me crave a drink. The tables and chairs had been stacked against one wall, except for a single table on which stood two large glass bottles. King and a couple of his bartenders held court at the bar, pouring drinks for men who consumed them on the spot. But most of the crowd paid no attention to them. The attraction was on that table. The line curled around it so the viewers Many of the Mexicanos could ogle the items on display from all sides. From my place in the line, I glimpsed long black hair floating in a solution of some kind, and a face so similar to mine that just for a moment, I instinctively touched my own to make sure it was still there. In the other jar floated four fingers on a bloated hand. Despite the garish banner outside, I alone knew what was truly on display here. The floating head had once belonged to my friend, Gregorio Lopez, and the hand came from my fierce cousin, 
Tres Dedos. Word of the gruesome trophies had reached me even in Mexico. I had felt compelled to see them for myself, for who wouldn't want to see their head in a bottle and people lined up for blocks just to look? I had come to pay my respects to my departed comrades and thank them for the gift they had given me. The celebrated death of the outlaw, Joaquin Murieta, and a new life without his crimes hanging over me. Rest easy, Gregorio, Manuel. I'm proud to have ridden beside you. Unlike the gawking whites, my Mexicano brothers and sisters regarded the grisly relics with what seemed a mix of sorrow and reverence. Despite my death, my name lived on, or so I had been told. Families still hung crude paintings or drawings of me on their walls and shared tales of my exploits at the table. When they didn't refer to me by name, they called me El Patrio, the Patriot, and remembered me in their prayers. I had been some kind of a unofficial patron saint of the Mexicano people. I was contemplating this when a familiar face entered the bar, flashing a tarnished badge to bypass the line and scowling at anyone who dared to challenge him. Harry Love looked as though he had seen better days. For a while, after presenting their trophies to the governor and claiming the reward, he and his rangers had been feted for bringing an end to my infamous career. But his posse had soon gone their separate ways and Love himself was set to shun the spotlight these days. Asking around, I learned that little remained of the blood money he earned by hunting down me and my friends. Most of the reward had gone to pay off his considerable gambling debts with the rest trickling away for a room, a bath, a meal, a woman, and so on. I wondered if any of those creature comforts helped him forget what he'd been party to. His face gave the impression of too much drink and not enough sleep. I wanted to think that his conscience troubled him. It would make me think better of him. Love seemed to fill my eyes on him. Visibly trying to look casual, he lifted his gaze from the jars and spotted me looking directly at him from across the way. Our eyes met briefly, then he looked away. He shifted his angle and took another discreet glance, but I had already started toward the door. Love must have grasped the truth suddenly. I was already outside when he rushed out of the bar after me, shoving through the crowd, blocking the doorway. Glancing back over my shoulder, I saw him looking around anxiously. Heedless of the horse and carriage traffic in the road, he stepped into it so he could see beyond the pedestrians crowding the street. He looked up and down Halleck, then Sansom, before finally spotting me up the block. Almost to the next corner, Love hurried after me. A buggy almost ran him down. Its driver shouted curses at him in his wake. Harry paid no mind. Hey, you there. At that, 
I stopped, turned around. A smile crossed my face. Love squinted at me, trying to see past my disguise. See, I said as he approached. Did you want something? Damn it! Just to see you. What are you doing here? Are you crazy? I don't think so. No. Who is it exactly you take me for? I know you anywhere, Joaquin. Don't play games with me. We've been through too much for that. I'm sorry, you've confused me for somebody else. Someone from your past, perhaps. You look like a man with a rich past. Memories of your friends, huh? Me memories? Yes. Good ones, I hope. S some. Not all of them. But mostly. Wow. What could be better than... That was not the whole story, of course. I can never forget love's crimes and cruelty against my people and his friends. Once, not too long ago, I would have taken his life in vengeance. But that Joaquin was truly dead now. I'd had enough bloodshed for one lifetime. Joaquin, it's, it's me, Harry. Surely you know me. Please, don't call me that name. I'm afraid I must be going. So much to do. The seasons, you know. I'm sure you're busy too. I, I'm not. Can't we go somewhere quiet? Get a drink or a meal? It's been so long and I... I'm sorry. I can't stay, but... We, but... The foot traffic flowed around us. I stepped into it and started away again. Then I turned around and faced love one last time. I owe you my thanks, Harry, if only for killing me as you did. We've both done terrible things, but I'll always think fondly of those happier days at our old claim, when we were friends. Joaquin! Then I was gone, vanishing into the crowd, leaving behind love, my past, and the bottled head that everyone but Harry believed was me. I had been there, and now I was gone. Only my legend remained. You're listening to Blood and Gold, starring Richard Cabral. Blood and Gold is a Realm production in association with Stryker Entertainment. Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Blood and Gold stars Richard Cabral, based on the novel Blood and Gold, The Legend of Joaquin Murrieta, by Jeffrey J. Marriott and Peter Murrieta, Produced by Marco Palmieri, Fred Greenhalge, Kaylin West, and Haley Wagreich. 
Adapted for audio by Greg Cox. Directed by Fred Greenhalgh. Executive produced by Molly Barton, Marcy Wiseman, Russell Binder, Peter Murrieta, Julian Yap, and Richard Cabral. Historical notes read by Elena Ray. Spanish dialogue translated by Alana Grafham. Regional dialect coaching by Luis Armando Mercado Campos. Sound design by Eric Mooney. Mixing, mastering, and additional sound design by Rory O'Shea. Audio editing by Corey Barton. Original score by Juan Carlos Enriquez. Music supervision by Marcus Bagala. Production manager, Alexis Latshaw. Production coordinator, Angela Yee. Casting by Sunday Bowling and Meg Mormon. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Blood and Gold by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.